0: the following message is from king's cross church in manchester new hampshire for more information please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com we are in the book of first corinthians we uh if you have a bible we are in the book of first corinthians um if you don't have a bible we got bibles in the back we'd love for you to take one those are for you to have Uh, we are in the book of first corinthians and so that is basically if you were to open up your Bibles on the back cover and then go in about 100 pages, it's, um, there's two books called Corinthians. It's the first one. And 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 10 this morning. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we are working through a little bit of a series called Idolatry. And we are looking at this together, um, not because we are uh, thinking that we are going to run into Indiana Jones anytime soon, but because we see idolatry in our own hearts and we need help to understand not only what's going on inside us, but how Jesus comes to change those things. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read verses 1 to 14 again. We did this last week. I'm going to do it again this week. And then we'll pray for God's help. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 14. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea And were all baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, that anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray for the Spirit's help this morning. Holy Spirit, as we open these words and see that idolatry is in the forefront of your mind as you want us to follow Jesus, I pray that you would give us your light and your illumination and that you would work in our hearts now to see and receive the rest of Christ as you expose our idolatry. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I recently... um, in the last year or two, found out uh, some very disturbing dynamics about my family history. I found out that my great grandfather was a Klansman. I don't know if you're aware, uh, Ku Klux Klan. They we were very, fam- they were very prominent and still are uh, in many places of the country. My grandfather, apparently, um, one of my cousins, opened up the back hood one day and found his hood and all of that. I mean, you're talking that—that's the identifier in his back, in the, in the back of his uh, back of his car, in the trunk. Um, and it's kind of been uh, a family dynamic that has long since been um, passed down. Not necessarily everybody becoming clansmen, but just kind of reporting on understanding our family history because actually it has explained a number of dynamics in my family's, uh, the way my family operates. I would hear racist comments from my grandfather and be very disturbed by those things. And it also explained how my own father um, made very intentional choices to go against those things. He made very intentional decisions of how he talked about people of other ethnicities and other dynamics within the, within our family, how we were very open as a family of having all different types of people in our house. And it very much explains why he chose certain things because we can't necessarily forget those things even if they're embarrassing that are in our family history. They instruct us, they teach us, they give us direction. They, they show us examples of positive or negative, dynamics that we need to be aware of. And frankly, it helps us not get too to use the Southern phrase, too big for our britches, to remember where we come from, right? (laughs) We don't want to forget those things, even if we uh, don't want to be defined by them. They are sobering. I'm not sure if we just sit down. I'm sure each of us were to have dynamics in our family history where we think, you know what? This happened. It's not defining, but it's a sobering reality in my family past or even recent history. Actually, when we come into Jesus... One of the things that we inherit is a very messy, uh, maybe uh, embarrassing family lineage. (laughs) We get this. This is kind of what's going on in this passage. We inherit a family yearbook that is full of people that we might not necessarily like. We get verse 11 here. Now, these things happened in the history of the Bible to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. When you read through the Old Testament, you find a lot of people that are not necessarily the most seemly, upstanding or nice people that you want to follow, right? Abraham, the father of the faith, a man that we have all said, we are in his line of faith, was a coward, not once but twice sold his wife to get off scot-free. Not exactly the type of person you want to follow. And yet, they're all written down for our instruction so that we see something about ourselves in them, positive and negative, not only that, but we see God's instruction of how to find rest in what he has given us in Jesus, and who he has made himself to be, shown himself to be in Jesus, right? Maybe a number of the things that we see causes us to cringe at what we find in ourselves and in the Bible. But as God is doing this work, we are talking about this whole thing of idolatry, exposing the idolatry in our hearts, right? So you have that, right? Verse seven, do not be idolaters, right? Verse 14, beloved, flee idolatry. It's all over the Bible. And Paul is, when he's taking on the church in Corinth, he is taking a straight aim at our hearts and saying, it's not just these objects that we go after. There is something in our hearts that caused this whole catastrophe of family lineage. So we saw last week that, idol, uh, that uh, the idolatry of our hearts, when we want to see it clearly, it leads us to its cure in Jesus, right? We saw idolatry as enslaving. It causes a lot of soul pain. It's hard to see because it's, it's uh, like right in our face. Um, and that idolatry takes God's place. But we also saw that Jesus gives freedom, that he is living food, and that he empowers us and takes our place as he fights against the idols of our hearts. So this, this week, we're looking at all these examples right in the middle of this passage. There's all these kind of stories that we've talked about a little bit. These stories of how this happened they grumbled and some of them were destroyed, right? There was 23,000 that died in the middle of the desert. We were looking at these stories to try to find, not merely how to understand them, but here's the main point of this, this, uh, this passage for us this Sunday. We want to find peace in Christ as he exposes our foolish idols, right? All these examples happen as a bit of like proverbial wisdom stories, right? To show us something about our own hearts but also how God works amidst showing them so that we find peace in Christ, right? We, our inner idols, we wanna find redemption and peace in Jesus, right? When we get exposed on something, I don't know if you've ever been exposed for whatever reason, but when we get exposed, we tend to be embarrassed. We wanna hide, we wanna run, we feel ashamed. And actually this passage is all just to kinda show up a little bit of a mirror. Here's what's going on in the inside of your hearts. But it's, it's one of those kind of like mirrors that you see things, and then you see through it right away, right? We want to see the idols of our hearts. We want them to be exposed, to be foolish, but God wants to direct us immediately to see who Jesus is and the redemption and care that he has for us in him. So this is not in order to shame us, but we want to see the foolishness of our idols inside our own hearts, these, these desires, these motivations that are not aligned with who God is so that we find who God is in Jesus and have our hearts redirected. All right, you guys cool with that? So we're going to pick up here verses 6 to 7. What foolishness do we see when our idols are exposed by Christ? First thing we see is verse 6 and 7. Our idolatry imitates Christ by demanding our worship. When we read verses 6 through 7. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So this is kind of selecting out a small phrase. Actually... Dave read for us Exodus 32, we talked about this last week. Exodus 32 is actually where this phrase is taken from. Exodus 32 is this whole scene where basically God has just saved his people from Egypt, it's the biggest, it's the most, you know, it's the Avengers movie of the Old Testament, right? This is what the whole Old Testament is based on, God saving his people out of Egypt for himself to be a people for his name, takes them through the Red Sea, destroys their enemies, destroys Pharaoh, Dumps all the water on top of them. They come out, walk through the desert, go up to God's mountain to receive God's word. This is what the family identity is going to be all about. And while they're waiting for God to tell them what the family identity is, they get a little impatient and they say, Okay, let's make a golden calf. Right? Then they take all their gold, they throw it into the fire, quote unquote, and out pops the golden calf. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I've never seen a golden calf may, uh, pop out of a fire, but that'd be pretty cool. Um, we all know that they're lying. That's not exactly what happened, but still. They make a golden calf. Now here's what's important about that story. We could just kind of think, oh, you know, they just chose a big old animal to make as an idol for themselves. But they're actually, what they were doing is they were actually pulling a very specific God from Egypt that they would have been under the oppression of, that they'd now been saved from, and that they were now going back to in their own hearts. The, uh, the cow God, um, the, there's a, well, not cow God, but the, the God for um, there's a god in the Egyptian pantheon of gods called Apis. He is represented by a cow or a calf, um, a bull, and is very specifically the calf god that represents the king of Egypt. right? So it wasn't just kind of like any old cow, any old god from the Pantheon. It was specifically Apis, who was uh, symbolized cur- a courageous heart, great strength, the fighting spirit of the king and was regularly used as a representative and a stand-in for the king in kind of how they told their mythology. Right? He was a symbol of strength and fertility, the exact things that you want in a king. So they weren't just picking any old king. They were picking the exact God that the God of the Old Testament had just saved them from. Right? It's a bit of a slap in the face to God. Hey, I'm going to choose your enemy. It It would be similar to maybe back in... 2004, after the Red Sox had decimated the Yankees, to walk into Fenway wearing a Yankees jersey. It would be like wearing the paraphernalia of your greatest, deepest, darkest enemy, right into the temple of God. Fenway. <sighs> you see, their idol was that they wanted, they wanted safety and security. Here they were. They, had ju- they were in a very vulnerable place, and they wanted the provision of God. They wanted God's care. They wanted God's help. They wanted his protection, but they weren't getting it on their terms. And so what they do is, I will get this. I will get it on my terms, and I will get it now. And so what they do is they get this calf as an expression of their heart's desire to get the comfort and provision of God on their own terms and their own way right now right? They wanted security and safety and they got it. But they didn't just get it. You see how this text says they rose up and play, right? And this is, again, not any statement on playing games or anything like that. But this is a statement to say, not only do we have the idols of our hearts and not only do we have to get them, but we must respond to them, right? See, they... They couldn't just say like, oh, see, look, well, now we've got this calf. Like, okay, so let's just kind of put this in as a temporary Band-Aid. We're going to wait for Moses to come down and tell us what to do. No, no. Okay, now that we've gone in the direction of our idols, now that, we've, now that we want to get our safety and security in our own terms, we must respond and get it now and, and, and shape our lives around it. So, See, David the last week we saw this quote where he says, idols counterfeit aspects of God's identity and character. Idols counterfeit aspects of God's identity and character. You and I were designed to respond to God, to enjoy Him, and to walk with Him, right? We were made to respond to all of who God is, which means our need for comfort, our need for provision, our need for protection and safety, our needs for pleasure, our needs for all the dynamics of our life are made to respond to all of who God is. That is who God is for us. He is good. He is protecting. He is powerful. He provides. But when we take God's characters and aspects and we get them on our own terms, that means that we will be responding to those dynamics. Our lives will, as as you might say, worship around these idols that reflect God but are not God. Our life decisions echo our heart motivations, right? That's what we call worship. When we get here, we get up here, we sing, we raise our hands, we raise our voices, we talk about who God is, and we sing about who He is. We think that is worship, and that is. But our lives, our decisions to give up our Sunday morning, give up our finances to worship God, meet meet with His people so that our lives are conformed to the image of Christ right? Tell other people about who he is. Those are worship because those are our lives coming around and responding to all of who he is, right? It's not just a song that we sing. This is how, the, this is how idols work in our lives. They demand that we worship them. So, for example, let me take up the idea of money. Of money. money is not evil, right? I think we all, if you grew up watching Scrooge McDuck, uh, ducktails jumping into this gigantic vat of gold coins. It's like money's not bad. That would probably hurt to jump into a gigantic vat of gold coins, but it is still money is not bad, right? This whole phrase, money is the root of all evil, that's a mistranslation of the Bible. It is a root of all evil, but money is not bad. It's a good thing that God's given us and how we do economy and work with each other. But... If money, think about it like this, if money becomes an idol, so to speak, right? We can kind of all say, does money become an idol? Yeah, money easily becomes an idol, right? But here, let me me show you this. Money is just the symptom of the deeper idol going on. Let's say that you have an idol of control, right? You must have things, you must have control of your life. And so money, you can use money to do what? You can live modestly. So the, the money that you save, you can, when things go bad, I've now got money to keep things under control, right? I don't spend or give away. I hold on to all my money and I keep it for myself so that if anything bad were to happen, I've got got things under control. I can pay for all that I need. I don't need anybody's help. I never need to ask for anybody's assistance, right? Or money can be an evidence of an idol of safety. I must be safe, right? This is kind of like a little bit different from control, right? I must have safety if the bank runs out, if I get fired, if nothing else, if if I lose unemployment, if there's no ability to get any money from anybody else, I will have safety and I must have my money kind of tucked away. Sometimes literally, Jay was just telling me recently about if you've ever had family that are a depression era family, right? So sometimes you'll just, after they pass away, you'll find money in random places. Jay's family, after his grandmother passed away, they found remember, I'm just trying to get the number right, between $50,000 $75,000 tucked away within her house, right? So when I say tucked away, I'm not saying like under the pillow, like open up the, the light socket and tucked in behind in the wall, down the, the rock wall, was a little wad of, you know, maybe a few hundred bucks, <laughs> a few thousand bucks, just tucked inside the wall so that when you, you know, randomly, I need, I need some safety in my life. I know I'm going to pull this light socket out and <laughs> But that's because there, we had these idols. I found that when my, grand, my grandfather passed away, same thing, tiles in the ceiling, reach your hand up, and there's a wad of $100 bills. Like, it's crazy. So th- that's a visual representation of how we can use money as an idol for safety, right? I need a backup plan, and I must have this backup plan on my own terms, right? It, the crazy thing about his grandmother's situation is that his grandfather had no idea. So they're like, we could have gone on all these vacations. <laughs> Anyhow, you can use money as a way of acceptance, right? I will use my money to get into social circles. I will use my money to to prove my acceptance. I will eat certain foods. I will buy certain clothes. I will be in certain places. I will use my money as a vehicle to get me into certain dynamics that get me acceptance with other people, right? I'll pay for the whole meal just so that everybody thinks I'm a generous person, right? Money is a way of acceptance. It's a a lavish spending. Right. I, I think we all see this on Instagram in very way, various ways. Money as a way of power, right? This certainly taps into some of the dynamics that we see today, right? I will use my money to buy political um, privilege. I will use my money to force political agendas. I will donate to others so that I am respected and seen, right? And again, let me go back. Money is not the problem. <laughs> Right. I could go down this list and we could talk about how you'd use money, sex, and power easily, right? <clears throat> using sex to get these things, using power to get these things, right? You could even use church and work and school, right? All of those ways to get a deeper satisfaction for the idol that you crave. So the point is not don't, don't use your money or anything like that. It is to say... There are these dynamics in our life that we, we, we all see and know, right? We want acceptance. We want safety. We want control. But when we turn those things that God provides for us in himself into an idol, we must make life decisions that worship those things and that will starve us. Because you see, we are trying to get out of... The desire, for worship, the desire for control, the desire for safety, the desire for whatever it is that you are experiencing, there is a deep thirst that we are trying to wring out of creation that we can only get from God himself. We will wring those things dry. And then we'll be angry, depressed, unsatisfied, and we will go at it again and again and again. You see that in John 4 with this woman at the well. Jesus says, there's a deeper thirst that you're coming for that only I can provide. I want God to save me from these things. And that's what these stories are all about that we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians. He is driving them, right, beginning back in verse 4, towards the rock, the spiritual rock that feeds and satisfies us. Right, how does Jesus give us rest when our idols for control will drive us insane in how we spend our money, use our bodies, use other people? Just a, a small reminder from... From Psalm forty, Psalm eighty-four, eleven: The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does God himself withhold from those who seek him and enjoy him and want him, even when their idols would give them more immediate satisfaction, even when your desire for, God, I just want a little bit of some pleasure. I just want a little bit of some safety. I just want a little bit of some, some control, and I can easily get it with this thing. Whatever it is, somebody else, another substance, another Netflix show, binge watch. God will promise and deliver on himself being your satisfaction because those things will always end the show will always come to an end there will always be another hit there will always need to be another person to satisfy the pleasure but god himself has provided to be an unending source of life and joy for you and that worship never lets you down that worship never dries up so when we're beginning to try to get into these idols, we want to see that it, it really is foolish to try to think that another show, another thing, another person will ultimately satisfy me for my desires that only God can meet. second thing that Paul is going to draw our attention to, not only is our, does our idolatry imitate Christ by demanding our worship, our idolatry tests Christ by hijacking our gratitude. Could you look at Verse 8 to ten with me. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So here's these three stories that he's laying out and he's saying, right, we must not do this. They did that. This will happen. We must not do this. This is what happened. They did that. This is hap- This is what happened. He it three times, and these three stories are basically back again in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, kind of recounting how God saved his people, and they kind of go in reverse order, almost as though kind of Paul is drawing our attention from the outside to the inner side of the story, right? So let me just kind of give you an overview of what happens here. Numbers, the first story, verse 8, is from Numbers 25. You can go read this later if you'd like. Israel, on their way um, out of Egypt, they come to this plant, this, this uh, country called Moab, and they are, uh, Moab is afraid of them. And so what Moab does is they hire a prophet. There's a prophet for hire, um, basically a pastor for hire, comes out, okay, um, Balaam, I want you to come and give a prophecy against God's people to curse them, right? This is from, uh, if you ever read the story, um, this is where uh, God uses a donkey to speak. Anyhow. Balaam is unable to. God stops him from giving this prophecy, uh, a curse against God's people. But what he does do is the story ends. And then the next chapter, Numbers 25, they are, all, uh, they are all up at the temple with the prostitutes um, going in on worshiping their pagan gods. So that's what it's talking about. They indulge in sexual morality, as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. God sends a plague as a punishment, as a judgment. For saying, you guys have turned away and worshipped another god. You have sought to get satisfaction. That You have sought to find ease because Moab is a big country. Opposition is hard. And they needed a way of escaping the pressure that they were experiencing. Verse 9. i got to find my page. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Right? There's a simple phrase, but here again, he kind of goes back into the story. So we were just in Numbers 25. He goes to Numbers 21. He tells a story about how God's people um, are wanting food, and they do not. They're a little bit discontent with what they've been given. Actually, uh, let me just read this for us. You can kind of hear Paul's point. I'm going to read from Numbers 21, 4 to 8. It's not going to be on the screen, but you can listen to me and get the sense. From Mount Mount Har, they went out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, right? So they're trying to, you know, we're trying to go around Boston, take the 495, still to get where we want to go. And the people came, became impatient on the way. And as they spoke, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Okay, let me just kind of give a little parenthesis here and explain. This is just like my kids when they go to the kitchen. I want some food. I am hungry. And then you open the food, and there is not only one jug of milk, there is three. Not only is there eggs, but there are apples, and there is bread, and there is plenty of food to provide for them. And they look at all that, and they say, I don't like any of it. I'm hungry. There's no food in here. You open the fridge, you're like, bro, there is food in here to make the children in a thousand countries jealous that you live the life of a king. And yet, here you are looking over this fridge and you are saying, there's no food. The people of Egypt were provided miraculous food every morning by the hand of God without any work to feed them. And yet, they look at this miraculous food called manna and they think, there's no food, right? So, just to kind of contextualize that for us, these are a bunch of bratty kids. <laughs> Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people, many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, and we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it up on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So that which was their judgment has now become their salvation." He lifts up the thing that was supposed to curse them, that they might be saved by faith in Je- and faith in God. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it up on a pole. And the serpent bit anyone; he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Back to 1 Corinthians, chapter ten. You see, people had rejected God. They had said, "God, your your provision isn't enough. Right? There's something that we want from you. It's not on your on our timing." It's not the way we want it. It's not sufficient. Then final, the final story is um, verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did as they were, um, and were destroyed by the destroyer. It's actually kind of the culminating comment. This is about when they first left the land of Egypt. They were being led by God and they grumbled against him. Have you brought us up to the land to die? God doesn't take doesn't save people to kill them in the desert, right? He doesn't save you to kill you along the way. But the reality is that all these things are there to show us that when we are trying to find our happiness in something other than God, we will grumble about how God is not doing enough for us. We will grumble against God Himself, right? When we are squeezing the world, we are squeezing other people. We are squeezing creation for joy and happiness. We are wringing it out. Those things will always run dry, and then we will complain to God that they do not satisfy us. Right? There's an article um, you can, I, I can send it out if you'd like um, by Paul Tripp. He's a counselor uh, down in Philadelphia uh, called "Grumbling: A Little Look, A Look at the Little Sin," and he makes some observations about this thing because you see here at verse ten nor grumble, we are commanded, do not grumble as some of them did. That, that's kind of the culminating observation, right? Here are all these things that God has done to save his people, to provide for them, to give them help, to, to be for them. And yet the culminating comment is not, ah, they shook their fist in, in God's face. Their culminating comment is a comment about our hearts, that it is a grumbling response to God's salvation and provision for us. We we grumble against him. And so Paul Tripp makes these three kind of observations about what a grumbling heart looks like, what a grumbling life looks like, The first thing is that we desire a life without obstacle, we desire a life without need to trust in God, and we find life in the creation rather than the creator. So, just to kind of draw this out, we do not like obstacles, right? We desire a life without obstacles, right? Here's what we like. I would like self-parenting children. You all immediately get how incredibly stupid that idea is. We desire self-parenting children. We desire self-paying bills. We want no health problems at any point, at any any time. We would like a convenient cold, which is to say we never want to get a cold. We want a number of obstacles removed from our life. And the fact that we have them come into our life on a regular basis is evidence that God is not bothered by obstacles. God puts obstacles in our way because he's not finished with redeeming us yet. Right, I think sometimes God had it, made a mistake in how he designed marriage. I would like to have a perfect spouse, and I'm sure that she would too. Somehow God designed marriage to be two imperfect people trying to figure out an imperfect thing with a perfect God, which means that I'm not going to get everything perfectly all the time, nor is my, sp- my wife. Right, But God put situations where puts us in situations where not only are the obstacles to drive us to him, but the heart our hearts that that go towards grumbling show that we actually don't want to trust him. Right. I think a grumbling life is a life that desires a life that we do not need to trust God. Here in New Hampshire, on a regular basis, we are independent people that do not need or want others in our lives. That's what the testimony of God that we had earlier shared. There was a need among us, trusted God for it, went to his people, provided for it. Often, we do not want to trust God and trust other people, and we find our joy in the creation rather than God himself. You see, these dynamics of, of idolatry hijack our gratitude. You see, they grumble. You can't be gratitude, you can't be full of gratitude and grumble at the same time. Right? I can't be, I love the creation of a car. I love the ability to drive on the road and grumble about all the people on the road with me at the same time. Right? But all of these expose my idolatry in my wish dreams of how I think God should have made things, and they expose that I think God made a mistake, even to the point that, for example, they just show how incredibly ridiculous we are. Right, this last week, I was not exactly getting Michelle's attention in the the time manner that I wanted. I texted her about some shoes that I was thinking about buying. Now you guys are gonna be looking at my shoes, don't look at my shoes. (laughs) Just go ahead and look at my shoes. I was trying to get new shoes. I texted her about new shoes, She doesn't respond, like even the next day, no word from her about the shoes, and I just start grumbling. She doesn't like me. (laughs) I don't get her attention. She never wants to buy me new shoes anyways. She hates hates me. (laughs) (laughs) These are the small stories that just begin to show us, look, when we talk about this idolatry stuff we think about like these huge things and really there are just these little tiny things just kind of sit inside us and need satisfaction that you know who cares about the shoes but it was more of the heart posture that god i just wasn't getting what i wanted on my own terms in my own way and then just made me a grumbler i just wasn't thankful like for for heaven's sake i've got an amazing spouse who is incredible with our finances and helps us think through these things and yet here i am grumbling about figuring out 50 bucks to spend on a pair of shoes. Paul Tripps makes this, makes this observation. The presence and power of God have come and radically changed us. That's what he's doing. His principal tool is trial. He wants obstacles in your life. He will bring rough places. He wants valleys for you because he wants to complete you, right? Here is the story that all these kind of, these, these evidences that Paul drives at, it, they are driving us towards seeing how God is not done with us yet, and he is among us, and he's still working, right? We tend to kind of think like, okay, once I've been saved, I've trusted in Jesus, now things, there's nothing else left to do. The, re- the reality is until your very last breath, God is doing something not only to sh- change you and to make you perfect in Jesus, but to show who he is to other people, Right? He is seeking to complete you in Jesus, and so he puts these obstacles, not because he hates you or he's trying to flick you, but because He is trying to reform and change your heart so that he is working out all of these ways in which you are satisfied with something other than him. He is kneading them like 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 a ball of dough to get his glory, his name worked in in your heart so that you are satisfied and that at the end of the day, this bread comes out of the oven and says, thank you to Jesus for everything in your life and who he is and what he's doing among you, right? You are not a completed project yet. He is working among you. What are the pressures, the obstacles that you've faced this last week that you've thought, if only I could get rid of these, then I'd be happy. Actually, maybe God would say, those are the very things that are to drive you to Jesus so that you can have a heart of gratitude for who he is. Here's what a heart of gratitude looks like: it rests in the presence of the Lord. Do you notice in each of these stories? that we just talked about, who's the main character that's there in everyone? It's God. God's the main character, and he has been a part of every situation and every obstacle from your week. And yet we go to Netflix, we go to Substance, we go towards griping about it to somebody else or social media. But amidst all those things stands Jesus, ready to to comfort you and satisfy you. Heart of gratitude allows us to look at life from the vantage point of God's power. God, God has designed your life in such a way where, where you cannot do things on your own power. He is there to provide for you, to give you the strength that you need. And a life of gratitude lives in the present awareness of God's grace. You know, the reality is, all the obstacles that we face could have easily just been left to on our own. And yet here, God is among us. Okay, let's, let's finish up here Verses uh, verses 11 and 12, the thing I'm happy about is that uh, there's more that could be said on all these things, and yet we're kind of working through these passages slowly, so Jay's going to finish this up for us next week, complete this out. But let me make a few comments here. Verses 11 and 12, our idolatry forgets Christ by exalting ourselves. Maybe this is obvious at this point, and we can just kind of say, yep, ditto, and done. But let me just kind of say this real quick. Our idolatry forgets Christ by exalting ourselves. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for your instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, that anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Right? Uh, Don't be too proud. Don't be too self confident. That's certainly a dynamic way of saying, but did you notice, on whom the end of the ages has come? Here's a big, the, the, the history of the world, according to the Bible, is basically, God created us to live with him and enjoy him and be eternal creatures that live with him forever. Uh, we broke that by rejecting God. Things were broken, and now God has been on a redemption, redemption mission to redeem and renew and restore everything, and then when the first person breaks the power of death, then the world begins to become new again. He is beginning to roll back the curse. So when Jesus, on that Sunday, into a dead body, by his own will, breathes in new life and a fresh lung full of air, the world begins to go back to what it was made to be, become a new version of the world. Death is beginning to get rolled back, like the blinds on a window. He's beginning to make all things new, which means that he is in you right now, seeking to, reach, re, to break down, to roll back the power of these idols that we all experience and face. He is actually living among you right now to give you his power so that you can reject these idols, you can repent of them, so that you can find your, your, your peace and rest in Jesus himself. That's just why he gives us this perspective. "'Therefore, let anyone thinks who thinks he stands "'take heed lest he fall.'" As these things, as God is giving us grace to say no to these desires of idolatry and pleasure or whatever they are, as we begin to find grace in that, don't get too big for your britches, so to speak, right? Don't get too proud. Don't forget, God is the one who's doing this which actually gives you confidence that it's going to continue, right? I'm going to be able to find more joy tomorrow, more hope and peace in him as, and power to say no to these things that honestly just make me so painful inside, right? I can find hope in those things because of him, not because it's happening in me, right? because of who he is, right? He is the one that is committed to doing this, right? Again, amidst all this, there is this main central character in this whole paragraph that we've been looking at, and he's named once, verse nine, we must not put Christ to the test, right? Amidst all of these stories, who is the one that gets mentioned in the very center? It's not just a general name for God, it is Christ himself. It is Christ who is living among us, who has lived in our body, right? He knows what it's like to have a human body that has hungers and needs and desires. He knows what it's like to live in a body that pleases and honors God, right? He knows what it's like to live in a body that is pure and undefiled and yet takes on the place of people that are unpure and defiled so that he could then give you his spirit to exalt his name. This is the gospel Jesus refuses to grumble, refuses to exert his full power as God himself so that he can save us from our idolatry, so that our idolatry, our grumbling and self-worship, so that amidst all of those idols, there is forgiveness, so that the worship he desires is not something that has to prove our worth to him, but responds to who he is, a heart that's grateful for what Jesus has done for us. The gratitude that he desires isn't something to pay pay him off. The forgetfulness that he desires is not forgetting who Christ is, but being a little less worried about who we are. Delighting in who he is. Not getting too big of ourselves. Being satisfied, finding peace in Christ as he exposes our idols. So as we end, let me just direct our eyes. The way that you uproot and get rid of idols in your own heart and life is by worship, by doing what we're doing now. Hearing from God's word, responding to who he is, saying, that's what I want, not me. (laughs) That is the tool in our garden of our hearts that gets at underneath these idols, removes them so that we can find peace in who Christ is. Right? all these idols that we see, they they imitate him. They offer false things. We Ultimately, at the end of the day, we realize it's just a bunch of foolishness in our own hearts. So let's find peace in Christ as he exposes our idols. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you have made us to be people who worship you, and so I pray as we worship you now, as we hear from your word, as we respond to you by taking the Lord's Supper and singing about your glory, that you would do the great work Of refining us, reminding us, and directing us in you to find peace in who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Kings Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. Kings Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.